Well, we've just been singing about uh, the goodness of God. But that, that presents problems, doesn't it, when, uh, when we do have difficulties? Or lots of you in an audience this size are having difficulties right now. It might be health, might be money, might be uh, relationships with parents, with children, with peers, with co-workers. How do we, how do we deal with people who say, well, if your God is so good, if the message that you're believing is so true, then why is it that you're having so many problems? Why is it that things don't seem to be any easier for you than for a lot of other people? In fact, there are some people who don't believe in God or whose belief is very weak, and they don't seem to be having the, the kinds of troubles that, that you do. Well, from the Word of God, we can learn something from the experience of the Apostle Paul. Because, you see, it's hard for us to believe today, but there were people back in Paul's time who also claimed to be followers of Jesus. And they were saying, now, Paul, you must not be the apostle that you say God has called you and anointed you to be. Because you're suffering so much. Now let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll start briefly in chapter 11 before we focus earlier on chapter 4. But one of the main reasons that Paul wrote 2 Corinthians was to, uh, to deal with these accusations that were being made against him. And some of the accusations he said weren't true. And he tried to give explanations for things they were saying and, and all about him. But, but this accusation, he admitted, yes, yes, I do suffer. And if we get verse chapter 11 and verse 23 up, you can see on the screen, uh, or you can be opening your Bibles or smartphones or whatever, and uh, see for yourself what Paul wrote. He admitted that he had difficulties. And this is what we need to do too. Because even though we say God is so good, and we're thankful for that, we don't mean to imply what some might infer, that we don't have any problems. It is true that when we come to Christ, our problems for eternity are solved. But here in time, we still have problems. We still have difficulties. We can still have problems of health, problems with employment. And, and around the world today, Christians are being persecuted much more than most of us here in America have experienced. Many parts of the world, there's much opposition to not only the message of Christianity, but to the person of those who are believers. And then there are people who taunt them and say, well, you know, where is your God? And so let's learn from the Apostle Paul. L look at what he, the difficulties he was having in carrying out the Lord's will for him. Some people would say, well, you know, if you're a Christian and you're, you're having problems, it's because you're not being obedient. You're not trusting the Lord enough. You're not 
uh, really believing as you should. You won't hear that message here, and, and it doesn't come through in the songs that we sing. Most of the, the traditional hymns and all indicate that, yes, we do have uh, troubling times and so forth, but God is still with us. However, if you go to the radio, or I suppose you can find it on the Internet now, too, you will uh, hear preachers who were saying, well, if you really are trusting in God, you, He will heal all your diseases. If you're really believing, uh, He will supply all the money that you might need. Uh, he supplies a lot of the money that, that they need. These people can, can uh, travel around and live in mansions and so forth. But uh, sadly, they, they do it in the name of Christ. And of course, it just helps to, to make it harder for those of us who are trying to preach the message as it's really intended to be. That, uh, but Paul, let, let's learn from Paul and his experiences. Notice what he says here. Um, are they servants of Christ? That is, these people who are, who are uh, accusing Paul of not being the apostle he says he is. Uh, and that Paul admits that he's uncomfortable doing this. If I'm out of my mind, you know, okay, uh, it, it's not what I shouldn't be talking like, but I am being led to, to share this with you. Gives on. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, have been exposed to death again and again. Five times I've received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. They weren't supposed to give more than 40, so they, they stopped at 39 to be sure. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Okay, now the, the more recent versions, uh, that word stoned has changed meanings nowadays. It means pelted with stones, not something else. Three times I was shipwrecked. I'm waiting for someone to say, oh, well, you know, the Bible justifies uh, uh, drugs because, look, even Paul says he was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers. Now, what he means is trying to cross a river and it's, it's too too high, too rushing water, you know. In danger from bandits, in danger from my own people, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and I've often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked besides everything else. And then notice this change in verse 29. Besides all these external pressures, sometimes from nature, Sometimes pressures that, that non-Christians also face, being shipwrecked or whatever. Uh, and sometimes because of, of my being out on the move and preaching the gospel and having opposition to that. He says, besides all that, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches, for the true believers, for those who have responded. Who is weak? And I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin? And I do not inwardly burn. In other words, Paul identifies with uh, the, the believers that have responded to the message, whether from him or from other uh, true uh, carriers of the word of God. And Paul, Paul is saying here that yeah, I have all these external things and then I have these, these internal. And the sleepless nights, no doubt, are, are not only because of any physical difficulty, but because of emotional difficulties that he faces. And I'm sure the leaders of this congregation, like of, of others, can say, yes, that, 
the care of the churches, the concern for the believers. Paul did have difficulty, even though he was clearly in the will of God and doing what God wanted him to do. But that didn't keep him from having troubles. Now, what we want to learn from this is, although we're not called to be out evangelists in, in dangerous places uh, and, and so forth, that, uh, that we still do have difficulties. And how is it that Paul dealt with the difficulties that he was facing, particularly with regarding evangelism, but we can apply it uh, in other duties that we have as well. And so with this background in mind, let's uh, turn to, to chapter 4 of Second Corinthians. Paul says, Chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Now, he was referring, of course, to the particular calling that he had as an apostle, as a church planter, as someone who would carry the message, particularly where it hadn't gone before. But all of us have some sort of ministry that God has given to us if we are a believer in the Lord Jesus, in the home, in our neighborhood, at our workplace, here in the congregation. Different, different assignments that God has given to us, often, you know, through leaders, but also through uh, His Word. Uh, and we have it by the mercy of God. It's not something that we have gone out and earned. It's something that we need to receive. God has, has entrusted this to us, whatever whatever assignment we might have within whatever our limitations, whatever the spiritual gifts we may have, whatever the, the specific situations that we're in. And so Paul said, we don't, now this version says, lose heart. And that may be a, a fairly literal translation if you check out some of the others. That's one thing I like about the versions you can download for free on, on your smartphone is you can quickly check out others too. But uh, the King James says we don't faint. And uh, in some ways, I think that's helpful if you think what happens when you faint, and that is you drop out of the situation. You And some of the other versions, and I think this is maybe closer to what is meant here, that we don't give up. We don't drop out. Some of them say we, we don't get discouraged, disheartened, discouraged. I think from reading what Paul has written elsewhere, at times he did get discouraged. That's sort of a, a, a feeling that we, we can't help but having. But he didn't give up. That's the important thing to keep in mind. We can get discouraged when people that we, we think are close to coming to the Lord turn away. We can get discouraged when people in our own family, our, our, our relatives, our loved ones, our parents, our children, uh, seem not to be interested, not to want to follow through. When a person, especially when we first become a Christian, we're, we're eager to, to share the good news with, with others around us. But uh, we can get discouraged when, when uh, they don't seem to want to, to follow the Lord. And even more, when some who are raised within our household and, and go through the motions and active as, as uh, young children and even as, as early teenagers. But statistics are showing that uh, a, a large percentage, too large a percentage of those who are active in churches like this you know, as they grow up, that if you look for them 10 years, 15 years later, you can't find them in worshiping the Lord and going on with Him. 
that can be discouraging. But we don't give up. And that's the important point. Now, the question is, how do we avoid not giving up? How do we avoid not getting so discouraged that we do give up? And that's what I want us to see uh, from the verses that follow. Uh, This was the way Paul avoided giving up despite all the hardships that we've seen in chapter 11 that, that he was encountering. So he says, first of all, now in verse 2, something they don't do, something he doesn't do. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. So before telling us how it is, why it is he does not give up, he first says it's not, it's not that I avoid giving up by changing the message. By uh, making it something that people want to hear. I think the, the Bible uses the phrase tickling their ears. That uh, finding out what it is that people want the preacher to do. Want the traveling evangelist to say. And then he'll, he'll adjust his message accordingly. Paul says, no, no, I, I don't distort the message. I, I don't uh, have some secret agenda about it. I'm not going to use deception. I'm going to tell it like it is. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't make adaptation and depending upon the audience and depending upon uh, people's vocabulary. I mean, you can compare how the gospel is preached when it's to a Jewish audience in the New Testament to a Gentile audience. And you can compare how the gospels themselves are written. Uh, Matthew and Mark and their style as contrasted, say, with the style of John. So, it's not to say that we can't make differences in the packaging, in the way that we communicate it, but the basic message, that we're not to tamper with. And so, Paul is saying, that's not the way that I avoid getting discouraged. And then, the second part of verse 2, he goes on to say, On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. We have sort of a twofold accountability. First, the people that as, as honest as we can be before them, we're, we're accountable to their conscience. They may make accusations against us, but, but and we, I, we heard earlier, we're to try to live a life that is honorable before them, but also before God. And there are some times when these might conflict. And that what people expect us to do, particularly if, if you're in another religion, what, what, uh, and, and how, how hard it is that uh, in most religions they take it if someone wants to leave, the religion from which they're brought up, born and brought up. And so, you know, those people say, oh, you're betraying the family and, and all that sort of thing. But we also have to be accountable to God. And so, Paul is saying that in the sight of our fellow men to the extent that we can, and in the sight of God, always, we are trying to present the truth plainly, clearly. I think the King James says manifestly, which is an old way of saying, openly, so that it can be clear. And I think that's important because sometimes people say, well, you know, in order to be a Christian, you have to to learn our terminology. You have to learn that when a Christian talks about justification, he's not talking about how you line things up on a page. Or he's not talking about uh, 
justifying yourself in in sense of making excuses. And when we talk about redemption, they have to learn that we're not talking about going in and redeeming a coupon somewhere. That we need to find ways of expressing what the Bible used in its terms to the people of its time and how we're communicating that message today to make it plain, to make it clear. And uh, so that's what Paul says he's trying to do. And he did it in his time and we're challenged to do it in our time. But then, besides saying what he's not going to do, not going to change the message, but what he is going to do, he's going to try to make it clear and plain. He goes on to give his motivation for why it is that he's uh, willing to go through all this um, inconvenience, is too weak a word, all this suffering, all this privation. And that's in verse 3. He reminds himself continually that even if our gospel is veiled, that is something covering it over, like a, a dark veil before your face there, even if our gospel is veiled, they don't understand it, they don't believe it, it is veiled to those who are perishing, who have a lost eternity before them. Now, if you're walking along the tracks and, and you see or hear a train in the distance and you see somebody else on the, the track and who doesn't seem to be... No, well, you see they're listening on their, on their, uh, with their... Uh, whatever, I don't want to say Walkman, that would date me. They're listening to music. You see all these videos about people walking out in the traffic and everything like that. So, yeah, somebody on there, you're trying to warn them. You'll perish unless you get off the tracks. But it also can be more insidious than that. That there might be something they're eating uh, or, or in a house in which they're living in, and there's some sort of gas leak of, of uh, something that's poisonous, something that's deadly, but they don't know it. That's the situation, of course, with so many. They don't realize that they're in danger. And so Paul says, I remind myself that even these people who are rejecting the message, the Jewish people who were long prepared for it, and Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies, and, and the Gentiles now that the gospel is being opened to on, on equal terms with the Jews, that... Uh, that they're, they're not receiving it. It's as if a veil is over their face and uh, they're, they're perishing. And so it's my job, what God has called and equipped me to do is to, to warn them in any way that I can to get them to realize the danger they're in and how God loves them and wants them to acknowledge their need of His rescuing them, of His saving them. And that God made this possible by Jesus coming and even suffering much worse than Paul suffered. Suffering crucifixion on the cross in order to show how much God loves us and in order in a just and righteous way to, to pay for, for our sins, for our transgressions. The big ones and the little ones. And that the people who don't see this, they're perishing and so I'm going to keep trying to make it clear to them. Now let's skip to verse 5 for a minute. Because Paul says another important thing he keeps reminding himself of is that what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And ourselves as simply your servants for Jesus' sake. 
In other words, Paul keeps reminding himself, it's not about him. It's not about us. Now, if a politician is out seeking your votes, it is about him or her. And if we reject that politician and go for some other, well, in a sense, we have rejected that person and we're going for another. And that's one thing Paul does keep reminding himself of, that when they're rejecting the message, that uh, it's not that they're rejecting Paul, it's that they're rejecting Christ. That is, assuming that he has made the message clear and plain about Christ. And so that he can't take it personally. And I think that's important for us to recognize too. And sometimes we forget it. Particularly when it's someone who's, who's close to us. And we're trying the best we can to live a life that is honoring to God. And that is... Uh, uh, trying to present the gospel clearly and, and not to browbeat them with it and, and so forth, but to, to show the difference that Christ has made in our lives and to, to have joy even in the midst of whatever difficulties we have. And, and we're trying all this and doing all that, and they still don't believe. Or having believed, they walk away from it, drift away from it. And that can be very painful, very emotionally distressing when that sort of thing happens, but we need to remind ourselves that ultimately it's, it's Jesus Christ that they're rejecting. He's the only human who's been perfect. We're not perfect. Paul will make that very clear. And uh, so that's why we need to make it clear that what we're seeking to get people to do is not to, to become followers of us, but followers of the Lord Jesus Christ along with us. So Paul says, I remember their fate if they die in unbelief. And I remind myself constantly from verse 5 that it's not about me. That I'm seeking to serve Jesus and to honor him and to exalt him. Now we'll go back to verse 4. He also reminds himself that he has a powerful opponent. I don't know whether any of you know the phrase March Madness. Has anybody heard that phrase? And one of the things that makes it exciting is when the underdog wins or even when the underdog comes close, as has happened a few times. And uh, Paul is saying, yeah, compared to the God of this world, I'm the underdog. That I realize I have a powerful opponent working to combat what the message that I and my fellow believers are seeking to get across. It's the God of this age who's blinded the minds. Now he's shifting from the notion of a veil in, in front of people. I mean, the Bible uses lots of these analogies. Now this idea of, of blinding, the bright light or something that's blinded us or, or whatever, just damaged the eyes, blinded the minds of unbelievers. So they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. An image is something which represents that which is real. And Christ is the one who has come down to earth that we can see as a, uh, somebody who is a fellow human on the one hand, but is God himself, so that enables us to see in a way we can understand what God is like. Not what his arms and legs and all like, but what his character is like. And that's, that's what Jesus has revealed. He's the image of God, the likeness of God. And, uh, but people, they have veils or their minds have been blinded because there is this 
opposition to God. Not an eternal opposition, because everything initially created was good, but uh, Satan rebelled against God, and uh, Paul now even gives him the, 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 I don't want to call it a title, title, but the description of the God of this world, that to people knowingly or unknowingly, uh, he's the one that they are uh, letting ultimately uh, sort of guide and, and direct and so forth. And so Paul is saying that's, that's the opponent that, that we face. And that is unnerving to recognize that uh, this is what God has done. He's given the commission to share the good news with others, even though there is this big spiritual battle going on with spiritual opponents. However, we have verse 6. That's why I pair verse 3 and 5 and now verse 4 and 6. Because we not only have a powerful opponent, but we have an even more powerful ally. Verse 6. God who said, let light shine out of darkness. That's one of the earliest sentences in the Bible. And it's talking about creation. And that the God who has made the whole universe and upholds it. This vast universe, which is much vaster now, we know, than what Paul could have imagined. This, this whole vast universe, the God who made that. He is the one who has made the light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Yes, we have the opposition of Satan, directly and indirectly, but we have the support of God himself, who is seeking to bring people to himself, as it says in, in what has been written on the uh, uh, in your bulletin here. God's heartfelt desire is that every single person on earth be saved through his son Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. God is seeking to bring everybody to Himself. He's seeking to illuminate us, to, to overcome this, this blinding that, uh, that Satan and, and all has, has brought about. And to, uh, to elaborate upon this, let's, let's move back up a few verses into chapter 3. While we're doing that, let's think about this analogy of light. Because in... John chapter 1 and verse 5, and he elaborates upon this, so it's not just Paul using this. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. In other words, the darkness that's brought about by the rebellion against God, God has come in the person of Jesus Christ to shine light into it. Now, let's see a little bit more about this light and about what God is doing by looking up in uh, chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians. And we'll go to verse 15. Paul has been dismayed by the uh, so many of his fellow Jews, despite how they were being prepared for generations to receive Messiah, uh, how so many of them have not received him, in fact rejected him, most of them did, and the Romans, for their reason, uh, did so as well. And uh, together, Jesus was crucified. And uh, so Paul will pick up in verse 15. Paul says, Even to this day, when Moses is read... Now, that's a reference to the first five books of the Bible, the Old Testament, which we often call the Law, or the Pentateuch, because there are five of them. Uh, the Law of Moses, and, and here he's using just this, this word, Moses, the the name of the lawgiver as the key person. 
Even to this day, when Moses is read, um, today people, of course, can also read it for themselves. But back then, books were very, very expensive, scrolls, actually. And uh, although the Jewish people, at least, were supposed to be taught to read and there was a lot of literacy, it still was, uh, you know, expensive to have these scrolls. So a lot of it you listen. In fact, it's important to realize as we're uh, studying the Word of God that, that it's basically an oral culture that people are getting their information by through the ear gate, you know. So anyway, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. And they're not really understanding it. Even though, as, as Jesus and, and later the, the New Testament inspired writers are showing how the Old Testament does point to Christ and leads toward Him. But they're not understanding that. And uh, Paul goes on to say, though, that uh, a veil covers their hearts. But then in verse 16, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now this word Lord is the word that is used to translate the uh, from the Old Testament the name of God that was God's name, especially in his relationship to the Jewish people and his covenant with them. And normally in the New Testament, this term Lord is applied to Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus. Jesus is Lord. And this is way uh, of saying Jesus is God, because to the Jewish mind, Lord was especially not only the one true creator God of the universe, but God in his special relationship with the Jewish people. But here is one of the very few, maybe the only part of the New Testament where Lord is also applied to the Holy Spirit. And that's appropriate because God is one. Although we know him in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's one God. And don't let any uh, Muslim or anybody else confuse you on that. We don't believe in three gods. There's one God. And this is, this is one of the evidences for that, that this word Lord is here used of the Holy Spirit because Paul is especially referring to the work of the Spirit in seeking to get people to turn to God, to believe in Him, and to overcome the the blindness that the human heart itself brings about and that Satan is trying to do all he can to stir up as well. Now, there are some Christians who say, well, the only people who can believe are are the few that God has uh, specially enabled to do that. And the rest, God has chosen to leave in darkness. And they find a few verses to support that point of view, uh, which I think they misuse. But uh, I think it's, it's when we consider passages like this and so many others, God is seeking to illuminate everybody. And it's up to us. Do we accept what God is doing? Using us, but we do have God, and chapter 3 makes it clear, specifically the work of the Holy Spirit working through us to bring people into a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The work of the Holy Spirit is to remove the veil and to bring people to Christ using whatever words, whatever examples that that we as fellow humans, God, instead of doing it directly himself, in most cases he wants to use humans to do it. And then uh, Paul does elaborate or mention here what 
others of his writings elaborate on, he wants us to get mature in Christ, to be transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. And uh, that's also the work of the Holy Spirit as we submit ourselves to him. But now let's close with verse 7 of chapter 4. Paul is saying the Holy Spirit is there working with us, through us, upon us, in order to share the good news, to get the message out to those who are perishing. And he's said that it's not about us. And then in verse 7, he says, he reminds us, one of my favorite verses, we have this treasure, the treasure of the good news about Jesus Christ, the one in whom we see the glory of God, the image of God visible to humans. We have this treasure in jars of clay. The King James says earthen vessels. That sounds pretty fancy, actually, to have an earthen vessel, jar of clay. Sounds uh, uh, more ordinary. But even then, we don't do jars of clay much in our own society today. Uh, we, we put things in disposable cups or disposable containers of some kind or other. That, that's what the jar of clay was. It's something that was easily broken. It wasn't one of these fancy, expensive uh, containers that, uh, that we can still find in searching in the ancient world. But, but the jars of clay were, were frequently ended up broken. And then it's called a potsherd. And that's one of the ways that archaeologists are able to date things because even as today we have styles that, that change. So they had different styles that would change over the, the decades and the centuries uh, in other places back then. And they broke, but they didn't dissolve. And uh, Paul is saying we have this treasure in jars of clay that this all-surpassing, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. It's not about us. And when somebody says, well, you know, you say you're a Christian, but, uh, but you do this or that or the other thing, or you're suffering in this, that or the other way, say, well, it's not about us. It's about Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ also suffered, but his sufferings were for you. He died for you upon the cross. He rose again to show that God has accepted a sacrifice of himself. And although we're suffering in this present life, he has assured us that one day we shall too rise with him, and for all eternity we won't be suffering, but we will be rejoicing in his presence. Let's pray. Now, Father, we thank you. For the Apostle Paul and for his willingness to go through all the trials and tribulations which he did uh, in order to get the, the church planted in so many places and the gospel uh, and the elaboration upon it recorded for us uh, that we now, nearly 2,000 years later, can read from his writings and profit from them and be challenged by them, be encouraged by them. Father, we pray if there are any in this room right now who do not personally know you, that they may realize that you are seeking through the Holy Spirit to remove any veils, any, any barriers they have to understanding and help them to, to seek out that which will, those who will help them to come to this personal faith in Jesus Christ. And for those of us who are your children, even when we face difficulties and challenges, remind us that Jesus himself suffered, and then that his followers, such as uh, the Apostle Paul, suffered greatly. And you have your purposes in allowing whatever suffering 
goes on in our lives. Uh, But as we trust in you, as we sing of your goodness, despite all these problems, uh, this in itself is a way of calling attention to others as to how much you mean, how how real you are to us, that we are not worshiping you because of uh, the benefits you necessarily confer to us uh, here in time, but we worship you because of who you are, and we look forward to worshiping you in that future time when we shall be ourselves also beyond all suffering and difficulty, uh, even as the Lord Jesus Christ is now raised uh, to your right hand. We pray in his name and for his glory. Amen.